Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here as we continue the School of the Word concerning the essentials of the faith. This morning, as we continue this study, how many of you, when listening to the news or looking at the newspaper or maybe just looking at your own life or looking at the neighbors or your family, how many of you see people, mankind, as a combination of or mixture, you know, of good and evil? We see someone giving their life to save someone over here. And then on the next telecast, we see someone who's just murdered 15 people. You know, people caring for one another, people coming to the rescue of flood victims, rebuilding homes, just as we have experienced many times in this church. People giving money, sacrificing themselves for others. And so much more good we see in people. But at the same time, we're also seeing murders, riots, all kinds of atrocities, greed, thefts, callous attitudes, selfishness, etc., etc. And so it's a real bag, it's a real gumbo when we look at mankind. And probably all of us have thought, at least at one time or another, and I know it's a common consideration in the world, at least among thinking people, as they look at all the discrepancy. How can people be so good to one another, and how can they be so bad? And so the question often arises, I'm sure, in our minds, what kind of being is man? What kind of a being is this? What kind of an animal is this? Will man ever transcend his environment and his nature? Will we ever get better? Or is man doomed to destruction and obliteration? And perhaps we've thought about some of those things before, and perhaps we've heard those things discussed from time to time. So this morning, as we continue with our study of the essentials of the faith, hopefully we'll begin to discover some of the answers to our topic as we this morning talk a little bit about the doctrine of man. And as we're going through these particular doctrines over the last several weeks and continuing, please be well aware, and I think you already are, that we are just barely touching the surface of what we could study. One of the great difficulties I had this week compiling information and getting revelation from the Word of God and reading. It is just an enormous subject as every other subject is, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine, doctrine of last times, and etc. These are enormous subjects that could fill days and weeks, months, and perhaps even years of consideration and study, and yet we're trying to narrow them down to 45 minutes. So just be aware, we are skirting over this, skating over very quickly, and we're going to be leaving out an awful lot, but hopefully we will be presenting what the Lord wants us to know as far as the salient issues are concerned. So it's a challenge to take these enormous subjects and pare them down to a very short period of time. So this morning, because of that, we are going to stay in here for five hours. No. <laughs> exactly. 
So we, we want to go to the Bible. You remember the first two studies were concerning the doctrine of Scripture. And by the way, if you had missed any of these studies, let me encourage you, let us encourage you to get the CDs and listen to these and get the hard copies of the notes. They are so fundamental to our understanding of the Christian faith and our ability to walk with God in a way that is pleasing to Him. So this morning as we go to the Bible for answers, we're going to discover what God says about man, about man's purpose, and about man's plan. God's purpose, God's plan for man. So let's begin. Father, thank you so much. Father, we ask that as we go through this this morning, you give us effectiveness. Father, you cause us to be succinct but specific. Father, you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hearing your word, Father, that you would give us a much greater understanding and revelation and appreciation of what you have done in this most grand creation the creation of man. Father, this morning, lift our eyes and our consideration and our wonder and our amazement at the works of your hands. Not so much when we look at the Grand Canyon and the beautiful sky and the sunset, but as we look at ourselves in the mirror and at our wives and our children and the next-door neighbor and whoever it is. Father, may we see in others the greatest work of your hands. Father, lift our hearts, lift our minds, lift our considerations, our understandings, our appreciation, as only you can do by the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is God's purpose in creation? All of you know where we have to begin, so let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are critical to understanding the doctrines of the Word of God first 11 chapters of Genesis are critical, foundational, formational in understanding the doctrines of our Christian faith. So again, let me encourage you, if you've not read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, read them, consider them, ponder them, study them, come to a greater understanding about who this God is and what he desires to do through creation, especially the creation of man. So this morning as we begin, in Genesis 1, in the first 25 verses, it recorded the the creation of the world by God, which culminates in the creation of man. The first 25 verses, remember the word begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is a very specific comment that what we see around us and what we are experiencing is not the result of a cosmic boo-boo, blast, or whatever it was. This is the result of the specific purpose, intentional decree of God that this creation should be what it is. just didn't come about through a cosmic, some kind of a way of jello out there, whatever. But God said, and in the speaking power of God, and as the Holy Spirit moved upon the waters... Everything that there is was created out of everything and anything that was not because there was nothing here except God. And so God creates 
And what we have here is the purposeful, purposeful intention of God in his decree that I will have a creation. But there's a reason for this creation. And so in the first 25 verses, you have just the, you know, the, 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 the time frame, one, two, three, four, five, six day creation story. And then it culminates. Because you remember, each day at the end of the first day, second, third, fourth, and fifth day, the word says, and God said it was good. And then we come to a real transition. The transition is now, rather than, you know, let there be waters and let there be this. But now the transition occurs with the change in the terminology in verse 26. When we have the great purpose statement of God that comes forth from him, and actually this purpose statement is the umbrella purpose of everything for the rest of the Bible, the culmination, the fruition of what God says and does in Genesis 1, 26, 27 is finally determined and comes to fruition at the end of Revelation. And so the entire Bible is as a result of this purpose statement. Everything that we know and everything that we experience and everything that we're going to understand in the Word of God needs to be taken back and compared to and looked at and understood within the context of Genesis 1, 26. So what does 1, 26 say? God continues to, to create, and all of a sudden he says, let us make man. Now, not just let us make man, but let us make man in a very specific way for a very specific purpose. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so you see, from verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1, we understand that God desires man to have the highest and most glorious opportunity and purpose. There is not another creature, there's nothing else in creation that can begin to touch the revelation and the purpose that God has for man. The most awesome, the most beautiful, the most incredible issue or instance, or activity, or whatever in creation pales, pales, at least from God's perspective, pales in consideration to the glory that God desires to declare through mankind, that God would create a being in whom and through whom the majesticness of his character and of his nature or visibly and compellingly and consistently and truthfully and wonderfully displayed. This is an amazing statement. Don't have time to go through it, but if you were to look at all the other ologies out there, all these other religions, and compare what they say about man and the purpose of man and the interaction between man and these gods... Christianity is absolutely, fundamentally, and completely unique. There is not another faith that even begins to say. First, 
who God is in himself as a single being. And then the purpose of man and the interaction between God and man. Every other religion misses it by a country mile. There's not even, I know in comparative religions, you'll, you'll get Gilgamesh, you know, the, the Babylonian thing is really close to, to Christianity. It is not even close in its understanding of the dynamics of the creator and the dynamics of the created being man and the purpose and the function between the two. It's not even close. Not even close. So here we have the only, the unique story. Why is it unique? Because it's from God. Why isn't there any other like it? Because it's from God. Why are all the others so much alike? Because they're from men. This stands alone. Absolutely, completely unique forever. And so you see in verse 26, we understand that God desires to be, have man to be his image bearer through whom his glory would be on display to the cosmos. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what about God is man to image for the display of God's glory? Exactly what are we to be portraying about God? Well, at least there are three things, at least three essential and fundamental things that all of us, as humanity, and especially now those of us who are in Christ because we're the only ones now who can actually do it because we have the Holy Spirit in us producing this. But this is the purpose of man. All of us are to reflect three things about God, God's character, God's nature, and God's activities. Now, I've actually separated them like that for our understanding because the Bible quite doesn't do it that way, but this is at least for us to have some reflection upon these issues because the character of God and the nature of God and the activities of God are so intermeshed that it is very difficult to begin to distinguish one from the other and isolate one. And so we need to be very careful not to make isolations of these three, but just to look at all three of them as facets of the same because it's all one God. So man as the image of God's character. <clears throat> what is God after in man concerning the revelation of the character of God? And as we look at this and as we understand and consider this, it's extremely important for us not to take any of these presentations as just purely intellectual informational things. Well, that's good information. Thank you, preacher. You know, we, we appreciate that. I've got five things I can get out of this. I understand these two issues. Well, that's great. But the major issue is this. This is what God wants me to be. This is what God wants us to be. This is our high calling, that each one of us would be the personal and then corporate image bearers of God. And so what about my life? What about your life? What about our lives together? What of God's character are we to be imaging in our lives? Man was created to reflect God's moral perfection. And we're talking about his character right now, his moral perfection. I've just listed a couple of things in here. We could go on and on, I'm sure. His love, his holiness, his truth, his righteousness, or to be on full and brilliant display. And when we again categorize and say his love, his holiness, his truthfulness, his righteousness, etc., etc., 
and you could add many more. We need to be careful not to differentiate these characteristics of God apart from or separated from each other. God is a being, and so there's no such thing as God is a God of love. And then we come over here and say God is a God of holiness and not connect the two. Or God is truth, but yet love. All of this is together who God is. But we talk about it individually so we can have a better understanding and a grasp of who God is. See, man was to accomplish this revelation of God's moral perfection in a very specific way, and it's still the same today. How are we going to be the image bearers of God's moral perfection? It's through one way only. That way is what? Obedience. Obedience. So why does the Lord, immediately after having created the man and the woman, set before them by telling the man of every tree of the garden, you can eat of all of them except that one right there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. Why does the Lord do that? Because, you see, it is the issue of obedience through which God's moral perfections are demonstrated and are put to full activity in our lives. So what does that mean about me? That means about me and it means about you that the way I live my life personally and privately in my own thoughts and desires, the way I live my life within the context of my family, the way I live my life within the context of my work, my just general social activities relating to others in the neighborhood or when I get coffee or whatever it is that I'm doing, no matter where I am and what I'm doing, I am called and we are called essentially and primarily to be those who are walking in obedience to the will of God. And only in that way is God's moral perfection demonstrated the way that pleases him. So that means that at the top of my calendar, that the top of my priority list must be not finding out the will of God for me and trying to be blessed or whatever, but the top, the top issue in my life is to be this. I need and want, because God has designed me this way, to be a man or to be a woman, to be a young person, whoever I am, of obedience to the Lord. That's our greatest call. Because within that call, everything else of God flows through this call of obedient walk with God. You see, this obedience was not to be just a slavish activity. You've got to do this and you've got to do that and don't do that and don't do that. This is not what we're talking about when we come to obedience in the Word of God. And as I said before, we don't have the time to go through all of this in detail. And so it may... It may seem to some of you that, well, he's talking about legalism, that I have to keep three rules and don't know. This obedience is not a slavish thing, but this obedience is the result of a joy-filled fellowship with God so that man would experience the very joy and peace of God himself. See, it's our fellowshipping with God, that intimate relationship and walk with God 
experiencing the joy and the peace of God in me and in you that moves and motivates and empowers our obedience to him. So much so that it's not what do I need to do, but what can I do, what I want to do. I want to do even more. I want to be obedient even in a greater way. Why? Because my goal is the pleasing and honoring of God's majesty through my obedience. And when we talk about this joy, this peace, remember Jesus said in John 15, he says, my peace I give to you so that what? I'm sorry, my joy I give to you so that what? Your joy may be full. What joy are we talking about? What peace are we talking about? What we're talking about here is the very joy and peace that God has within himself about himself. That's the joy of God. That's the joy that I am to experience. That's the joy that Jesus offers to each one of us. That's the peace. That's the love. That's the satisfaction. That's the contentment that God offers and gives to us and develops in us as we walk with him in an obedient way the satisfaction that God has within himself about himself, the joy that God experiences in himself about his very being, the peace that God is within himself, his settlement, his contentment, that there's nothing contrary to his will within himself, no strife, no disharmony. This is the peace and the joy of God that he gives to us. And this is the experience that when we have it, it begins to open wide the doors of the heart of our obedience to our God. So that which maybe at one time was duty begins to become our greatest delight. I delight to do thy will, O God. My delight, your delight, should be obedience to this God not only to give him the joy that he deserves, but so that we can experience his joy in us. So that as we experience the gift of God's joy in our lives as God deposits and develops his joy in me, as he gives us the gift of his presence, of his joy, of his peace, of all of his attributes, as he does that, the joy that he has over the joy that we receive of receiving his joy. Just like a father or grandfather or someone being filled with joy and anticipation and bubbling over when his child is going to be opening a wonderful present on a birthday or Christmas or whenever. Because those of us who have children know The children don't anticipate and wait for, in a great way, Christmas or birthdays nearly as much as we do. Isn't that true? You see, if I bought something for my wife that I know is going to bless her, I even begin before her birthday to drop hints about something. Don't I do this? Hoping this. Well, you know, you can give it to me before my birthday. Okay, okay. Why? Because there's such joy in me to give to her. That's how God is. That's the God whom we serve. This great God of joy and love, so anxiously anticipating and desiring to pour into us his very self, himself.
What man images thou about God's nature? What about God's nature do we image in our lives? By imaging God's love, remember we talked about joy and peace. Remember in Galatians 5, verse 22. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Then there are eight words that describe like eight facets of what that fruit of the Spirit looks like. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like? Love, joy, peace. Eight words, eight descriptives, eight facets that describe love. And so this joy and peace is a revelation and experience of God's love. And as we are imaging God's love, as we are experiencing and giving it forth, man would be displaying something most unique about God. And I think of all the things that God desires to do, this is quintessentially the heart of it. God has created us to be beings who love one another. And in the context of that loving one another, of being those who image the love that he has within himself about himself, there is a deep revelation that is easily understood when we understand what the true nature of love is. By imaging God's love, man would be displaying God, how? As a community of divine persons, not as a single person. That's extremely important to understand. You see, through loving one another, man was to image who God is within himself. Through loving one another and through doing acts of love and caring and living in a community of love, Man was putting on display the most unique nature of God that the world needs to see, that there is. One divine being, one being. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Existing as a loving community of three distinct divine persons living in perfect unity. We call this the Holy Trinity. By loving, by man being made in the image of God as one who loves and as man participates and uh, uh, is a part of this and receives and gives this love, what we are seeing is something great, much greater than just one man caring for one person, caring for another person, or a husband and a wife caring for one another, or a mama caring for her children, or children being obedient to parents. That is good. But we are seeing something absolutely, uniquely amazing. We are seeing who God is within himself. That he's a trinity. That he's one in being existing as three divine, distinct, divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No other religion has this. Why? Because you see, every other is a false religion. This is the truth. This is the most unique characteristic of Christianity. This is the most unique revelation about God. I am 
one in being, three in persons. And as we love one another, as we are demonstrating the moral perfections of God, that revelation of the nature of God, who he is within himself, is on display and begins to be characterized and understood and emphasized in our lives and demonstrated and revealed to the world, even though the world may not see that. You see, how do we say this? Why do we say this? How many of you know that 1 John 4, 10 says what? God is love. Remember 4, 8, 9, 10, 11. Remember? God is love. Everybody knows that? What is the unique issue of love? In order for love, true love, to really be love, there need to exist at least how many people? How many? Two people. You see, a person by himself, totally isolated forever from everyone else, cannot love. There has to be two. Love demands and presupposes a community, two or more. That's why you see when Islam says Allah is a God of love, it's not the truth. Because, you see, God is reflecting through our love the very being of his triune nature that within himself there is this activity, this atmosphere of mutual love among the three persons of the Trinity. And love is a quintessential revelation of that community of God. Because love requires more than one person Therefore, it was necessary for God to create people. Let me read this scripture to you, Genesis 2.18. By the way, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 begins the second chapter. And it is a, a detail in greater understanding of the creation of man. So if you want to know where Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to verse 31 goes, it goes right where God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man according to our image after our likeness. That's where chapter 2 goes, right in there. But God said, look, I'm just going to go through this thing with this. Very good. I want to just finish this chapter out. I just want to describe to you what I've done here. I'm going to come back and give you the details of what I've done. It's not a second creation story. It's an elaboration of the most important thing that God is telling us about the man, about the creation of man. It's not a second story, as some will say. It's an elaboration upon the first. And so in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fitting for him. Why wasn't it good for man to be alone? God created Adam first. Now, we don't know how long. Remember, he told Adam, Okay, name these animals and, you know, and all that. We don't know how long this took. You know, in, in Genesis, it looks like it's five minutes. Could have been a day, could have been a week, could have been six weeks, it could have been years. We don't know. So let's not presuppose, oh, it had, you know, like this. And so here's Adam by himself. <clears throat> and Genesis 2.18 says, not good, but in Genesis 1, is it verse 31? It was very good. What verse is it in Genesis 1? 31? Yeah, it was very good. So how do we get from very good to good? Well, in verse 31, he has both here, but we're going back to 126 when he begins to create man. And so he creates Adam. Why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? Why isn't that good? It's not good because of the purpose of God. The purpose of God is to display his triunity. 
his nature, his character, his perfections, his work. And if there is just a being upon the earth, how can that being display the love of God having no one to whom to give the love and from whom he will receive the love? You see, it can't happen. So I am going to make man a helper suitable for him. What does that mean? One whom Adam can love as an equal and one who when she receives this love as an equal gives it back to Adam therefore showing between the two in their community what the community of God looks like. So that's what's going on here. Adam can't be by himself. Why? Because it doesn't conform to the purpose of God. In Genesis 126, I need to make a helper for him. This doesn't mean because man needs a lot of help and men need a lot of help and remembering this and washing their clothes and cooking and whatever and just understanding how life is all about. Therefore, God created a woman to help us. Well, those things are true about men, but that's not why God did it. Jean would tell you that she can, has to tell me 15 times about one thing. And she says, I've already told you that. And Tim is, I've already told you that. I've already told you that. Well, you know, it's, it's that I always know. I'm just trying to elicit her helping. So, <laughs> why isn't it good? Because it doesn't conform to the purpose of God. It doesn't display God in the majestic holiness of his trinity. So Adam being alone was not good because he could not image God's love by himself. He needed another person whom to love and from whom to receive this love. He needed Eve to love for love to be possible. He needed another person for love to be possible. So man and woman living in a community of love was reflective of the loving community of God himself where love is given, received, and returned among the persons of the Trinity. Now this is why there's so much emphasis in the Bible about caring and relating to one another in love. Have you noticed that the Bible, especially the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, the hased, the loving kindness of God, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Love, 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 care, and all the attributes of love. It's just strewn everywhere, especially in the New Testament. Why? Because, you see, it is the, as I said already three times, the quintessential way God is demonstrated in the community of himself. We are to love one another because to love one another is to say this is who God is. <clears throat> not to love one another, not to care, and not to serve is to say this is who God is. And when we're failing in love, we're inadvertently perhaps, at least inadvertently, saying that God is not a God of love. He is not who he is. And that's why it's so critical, these issues of relationship and the one another's and the each other's are so critical in the Bible and so critical among us. Let me tell you, if there's anyone for any reason in the church with whom you have a problem or who has a problem with you and is causing the love to be difficult or perhaps for season cease. We need to move heaven and earth to overcome that at any cost to myself. Why? Because this is the power of the revelation of God's glory in us. 
This is why we were not only created, but this is why we were born into the kingdom of God. So it's not just, you know, you ought to love one another. Why? Well, because God wants you to love one another. Why? Because he wants you to be kind to one another. Why? Because you need to be kind to one another. That is not the reason. The reason is this. Loving one another is the purpose of God in our lives. Why? Because he is a God of love. And by our loving one another and living in this community of caring, love, and serving one another, we are displaying the very community of God himself. Now, there is no more important reason than that. I can't get deeper than that because the Bible, I don't believe, goes beyond that. You see, as man relates in a community of love, he does, throw, he does so through distinct roles. God created man and woman to not only display his love, but to also display through this love the way the relationship is of love is carried out. And what do you mean by that? You see, within God, there are three persons. One being, three persons. The Father is fully God within himself, having all the attributes, the nature, the essence, the substance, eternality, the power, the abilities, the knowledge, everything totally of God in himself, but not by himself. The son, I could say the same thing. In himself, everything, completely, totally God. I mean, does this bend your mind? And yet, not by himself. That should say something about our unilateral activities, and I can do it on my own, and I don't need any help from anybody else. It's not God. And the Holy Spirit is also equal with the same, et cetera, et cetera, totally and fully God within himself, but what? Not by himself. And so when we see that, what distinguishes the Father from the Son from the Holy Spirit? You can't say his nature because all three have the same nature. You can't say his attributes because all three have the same attribute. You can't say his eternality because all three have that. You can't say equality because all three are absolutely equal. What distinguishes among the three persons? How do we know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, there's love. They love one another. That's right. But how do we make a distinction? Because, you see, there is distinction in the Godhead. And because there is distinction in the Godhead and because man was created in the image of God to demonstrate not only the love of God but the distinction within the Godhead. See, love presupposes distinctions. We don't like that as human beings, but this is God. And how do I know the Father is a Father because of his role or his leadership? How do I know the Son is a Son because of his role or his function? of his submission to the Father's will. How do I know that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit? Because of his function, his role, and submission to the Father and the Son. That's the way God distinguishes among the three persons of the Trinity, that roles, the functions. Therefore, for us to be reflective of the distinctions of roles within God, their need to be distinctions of roles between men and women. It needs to be. First, and make sure we hear this, 
because it's not important for us to hear this so much as it is important to say something about God. Galatians 3.28 is a verse that Paul has proposed and put forth to say all of us are standing before God in Christ absolutely as equals. Because the Father has a distinct role of the Son or the Holy Spirit, does that mean that one of the members of the Trinity is more equal, if you would, is greater than the other? Can we say that biblically and theologically correctly? No. We as human beings before God in Christ are absolutely equal in every way. I must move along. So men and women have equal worth, dignity, and value before God. However, God has ordained that man has a responsibility of leadership, especially in the marriage and in the church. Ephesians 5.21, Paul tells the church to be subject to one another out of reference to Christ. Does that mean that women are supposed to be subject to every man in the church? No. That means that women are supposed to be, and even men are supposed to be, subject to the authorities that God produces in the church. But there are role distinctions. So therefore, in this church, for instance, you have already noticed, at least some of you who have come in from other churches, that we make a distinction in roles and in activities, in marriage and in the way the church is operated and led. Why? Why do we do that? Because, you see, it has to do with the roles within God. Feminism today, egalitarianism meaning that they're all equal, but, uh, you know, therefore all the roles are equal. When we have men and women uh, operating and functioning within the church, especially in marriages, in the same role, husband and wife, 50-50, women leading, men leading in the church, et cetera, et cetera, it obliterates the distinctions within the Godhead. That's the problem. We are to be exemplifying and manifesting. And so is there a greater role that any of you have as a man or a woman than what God has given you that in your distinctive role you are distinguishing and revelating who God is in his roles? No matter whether you're a woman or a man, you and I have the greatest revelation. Jesus never got upset to say, you know, God the Father is the leader. You know, and that takes me off. I want it to be the leader. Man, never. Or God the Father saying, you know, I'm tired of leading. I wish Jesus would do something around here on his own. Never happens. And so, whether you're a man or a woman, whatever the call is, know this. There's no greater glory than for us to function within the roles that God has given us. So the world may see who our God really is. But all of this is great, but Adam ate. I may have to take five minutes over today. Is that all right with everybody? But Adam ate the fall. Sin came into the world. You see, all of this is a glorious, glorious revelation of the purpose of God in man. But sin came into the world. Through Adam's disobedience and sin was inherited by all of Adam's offspring. Therefore, we were all born with original sin and we sin. And as a result, the image of God in man was seriously scarred. Sin corrupted every aspect of man mentally, morally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. 
We call it total depravity. There's not an area or an aspect of man, personally or corporately, has not been (coughs) (coughs) corrupted by sin. There's not anything that has not been touched and corrupted by sin in our lives. Nothing. You see, this means that man has lost his ability to have a personal communion with God. That man lost even his ability and desire to seek God's forgiveness. And I have references here biblically for you. That man was placed under the curse of disobeying God's law. That man is subject to God's wrath and that man had no hope in the world having become God's enemy because of sin. You see, now, does this mean that man is corrupt as he can be, that no one ever does any good, and that there is no altruism or love or sacrifice among the sons of men? No. It doesn't mean that people still don't do good and people don't do the right thing, at least within the context of natural living and societal regulations. You see, God has not abandoned his creation even though it has abandoned him and has been corrupted by sin. God has not abandoned us. Man's sin has made it impossible for him to be saved from the effects of sin without God's personal and powerful intervention. However, see, we cannot do any good as far as pleasing God and meriting our way into eternal life. It is impossible. It is impossible for us to merit our way into eternal life. However, God still rules and reigns, and he still sustains his creation. Why? For the general good until his work of redeeming his people is completed. Why is this world still going along? Second Peter 3 tells you, God is still keeping this world going through the common or general grace. For what purpose? Until the very last stone in the house of God, the living stones, the very last one is taken out of the quarry of life and placed into the structure of the temple, the living temple of God. And when that last stone is placed into the temple, whoever and whenever that last stone will be, then all things are completed. So don't look to the politics, don't look to the weather. These are indications that we're getting close. Pray, Father, put the last stone in. Bring in the last one whom you love, whom you have ordained unto eternal life. See, God is not waiting for people to be saved. God is decreeing and saving his people one at a time and building a structure and when that last stone goes in then the trumpet of the Lord shall sound at that point Jesus coming back at that point Jesus coming back you see look at all the other stuff but let yourself know this our God has a purpose and a decree and he will have Genesis 1 26 fulfilled And we are part of that fulfillment of God. You see, God's general or common grace keeps man and creation in place so that man still retains his created, God-created dignity and worth so that man's inhumanity to man is still not to be tolerated. Here's what one man says about it. God continues to show a measure of favor or understanding, undeserved kindness to his creatures in general. 
He provides the sustenance they need for their physical well-being. He restrains the effects of sin both in individuals and societies and enables the unregenerate to perform civic good, that is, to accomplish things that promote the welfare of others. Not the least evidence of his common goodness is his sustaining men in their scientific enterprises and their search for truth about themselves and about the physical universe, enabling them to make many very fruitful discoveries. So, yes, man has fallen. And, yes, there is a redeemed manhood in the world. And everything about our lives is touched and corrupted by sin. And we have no hope without Christ. But mankind is not as bad as he could be because of the restraining work and presence of the Holy Spirit. And neither are we. And God is on the march, getting closer every day to the Genesis 126 fulfillment. You see, man in Christ, the church, us, is God's recreation into his image, Romans 8.29. What does Romans 8.29 say? For whom he loved, he, he, whom he predestined to be what? Conformed to the image, image of his son. Image 126 of Genesis. Let's, let us make God man in our image. The image of God is Christ. And we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Therefore, we are being fulfilling through the purpose of God. In Genesis 1.26. So the church is God's recreation into his image so that with Christ we shall rule and reign. Remember, they shall have dominion. We're going to have dominion one day as God's activity. We shall live in the presence of God as his community of family forever, being the full display of his marvelous grace. I did leave out one thing about the image of God in creation and dominion. But you'll see that in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Hopefully this helps us to understand a little bit about the doctrine of man. So next week, we continue along in the rest of the story. Thank you so much for being here.